All right, welcome to Scott Moffat's 21 Podcast. It's a show all about the news and issues faced by the Big Ward 21 in the city of Ottawa. It's a platform where Scott, as the counselor of the ward, can expand on the various subjects uh, that are out there and give you a lot more than you'll get from the headlines or the eight-second soundbite. And let us say hello to the host of the show, the good counselor. How are things, Scott? Great. How are things with you? It's another It's another day. It's another new day and another new podcast episode. Yes, sir. Yes, it absolutely is. And we're recording this on a Monday and it's kind of a gray one. We had a bit of snow dusting on the uh, on the old ground for the first time. That's uh, to be expected. We are in Canada after all, but it does kind of put you in a certain headspace, doesn't it? It certainly does. It makes you question the shoes that you wear in the morning. And you're like, oh, <laughs> snow. And I got to yeah. get my kid all bundled up. Only one kid still wears snow pants because only one kid is still, you know, not cool. And so, uh, yeah, getting him in his snow pants for the day and stuff like that. So always good times in the mornings. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and I've got some leaves that still need to be picked up, so I'm hoping the snow is not here to stay. I'm hoping we get a few nice days between now and when the snow does, in fact, stay. It's not real good for the old yard to have, I don't know, but a foot of leaves as I have at the moment. So <laughs> I remember that one that one year. You, now you've got a ton of trees in your property, so I've yeah. got I'm 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 surrounded by desig- or by uh, coniferous type trees, so I'm, I'm pretty good. But the uh, there was a few years ago when I lived in my old house and. Um, but it's Christmas Eve and it was like 24 degrees. I'm like, well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll go do those leaves <laughs> so like outside on Christmas Eve, just raking leaves, bagging bags. Um, just cause it was like some ridiculous, most people I think, uh, were actually on golf courses just so that they could say they golfed on, on Christmas Eve that day. But, uh, yeah, we, we, we'll get some, we'll still get some good days between now and Christmas. Yeah. I remember that day vividly coming home from work and I was, I was in that same headspace, like, okay, I'm going to go golfing. And I never did, but it was just to be able to say you did. It's a, Absolutely. Yeah, a yeah. funny headspace. We may, we may never get that again, but uh, let's get to the podcast because we've got lots to, we want to get into today. And um, the official plan is now in place. That's the, that's the overall document that uh, basically governs how the city council does its business. For the next, what is it, 25 years? Is that the 25 number? years, yeah. It sets out to, to 2046. There you go. So it's a big deal. It's a big, big document. And what we haven't talked about, for the most part, is what it means to the residents of this ward. And this ward, as we all know, is uh, primarily rural. So we want to get into today uh, what the official plan means for rural residents. Yeah, so in the last episode of the podcast, we sort of went a high level approach, to the official plan, but really wanted to sort of refine that a bit more and, and talk about uh, rural Ottawa and the official plan. Cause we do have, you know, there are sections of the official plan that do uh, relate to rural Ottawa. It does, it is still the overarching document on, on growth policy and, and other matters uh, for rural Ottawa. So I felt it was important to sort of dive into that and just give a sense of what it, what it means for rural Ottawa. And, you know, I just uh, to begin on that, the reality of the official plan is that it's it's about growth. It's about how do we plan for the future of growth in this city. And we know that that our projections are showing us that we'll be at 1.4 million people by 2046. The majority of that will be in the urban area. So a lot of the policy discussion and direction in the official plan are are catered and geared toward the urban area inside the urban boundary. And we've talked about urban boundary sort of ad nauseum in this, but that's so what I want to do today is just sort of take a step away from that, look back on outside the urban boundary, outside the new urban boundary, mm-hmm. and and with a little focus, 
primarily in in our ward and what it would mean for the different villages and the different uh, rural communities and and I'll be honest not a lot changes uh, for us because of that reality of of the growth so just to give so like I said, it'll be relatively high level, but so in, in the official plan, you have four land designations. Now we, we know that there's a ton of different uh, zones that exist in rural Ottawa from a zoning bylaw perspective, but in the, in the official plan designations, there's, there's four, there's agriculture resource area, a rural countryside, rural industrial and logistics. So that'd be your, that's kind of a new one, that logistics word. I mean, that's about the the distribution of goods, um, obviously the influx of, of e-commerce and distribution warehouses, uh, that's in there. So coupled in with rural industrial and then village. So all your village policies would all pertain to anything that has a defined village boundary. Uh, so like a, a, like a Munster, Cars, you know, Mantic, Northcore, Richmond, all those communities that have that defined village boundary would have village uh, designations and zones uh, within them. So the residential zone in a village you know, in the, in the, in the city, we talked about R1 through R5 last year, last week, uh, in the last episode, but in a village, it'd be like V1P or, or whatever. It'd be one of those. And that's just the difference between, uh, the urban and rural zones when it comes to residential. So in, in terms of some of the, some of the policy pieces in the official plan, we have these policy statements and then the official plan elaborates on those. So one of them is protect farmland for regional food security. Another is support diversification of farming operations, protect farmland from uses that would impede farming. So all those those three are all really pertaining to the protection of agricultural land. And we've talked about that quite a lot uh, in previous episodes as well. I mean, everything I've done in my time on council has been focused on, not everything, but let's, when it comes to rural lands, when it comes to farmland, um, I've tried to make sure that the city has policies in place that protect that rural farmland. And through the the LEAR, uh, which is the Land Evaluation Area Review, it's the scoring system for for primate cultural lands. That's where we look at that that protection, those protectionist policies, and making sure that other other types of developments don't infringe on on agriculture because agriculture is the prime use, and so everything that's around it. You know, it has to has to sort of live with farming rather than farming trying to live with the other the other uses. Right. So those are those those all get more elaborated. I think it's in about section nine of the official plan where we talk more about those those designations. Uh, and then from a residential perspective, you, we talk about the the rules for severances and estate lot subdivisions and. Um, we mentioned that industrial and the, the logistics piece, you know, clustering those. So we're not spotting them all over the, the rural area, but that they're in more defined areas. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're providing opportunity for, for economic development. So there's a, you know, there's a key, I'm going to read this one because it's, I think it's important to read it, but it, it's the key policy direction as it pertains to rural economic development. And it goes support rural economic development throughout all sectors. Uh, Ottawa also has, one of the largest rural areas of any city in Canada. Now, we, we, we know that. I mean, it's 80% of, of Ottawa, over 80% of Ottawa is, is rural. And it's home to 86,000 residents and over 2,000 businesses, which includes approximately 1,000 farming operations. It plays an important economic function in Ottawa, with rural businesses generating approximately $1.96 billion in annual revenues. Ottawa's rural area is dominated by high-value industrials such as in industries, sorry, such as agriculture, construction, mineral extraction, manufacturing, and warehousing. The rural area is also home to 26 villages, uh, many of which happen to be right here in, in Ward 21, which have varying degrees 
of enterprise and economic activity. Rural villages and their main streets are important to the vitality of rural areas as hubs for essential services and essential component to identity, culture, and heritage. So that's kind of an important catch-all for for the commercial side of things in 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 rural in the rural Ottawa. We know that we want the villages to be the focus of of uh, a business, and we want to make sure that that those types of um, service types of businesses are are located within a rural villages and not sort of, you know, dotting the landscape. We want to make sure that communities can be, you know, we talk about 50 minute neighborhoods uh, from the citywide perspective, but also in, in villages to a degree where we want to make sure people who live in villages have access to these things. You know, I think in a, in a, in an episode a few weeks back, we talked about, maybe it wasn't here, but we, we, we've mentioned the Dollarama that is supposed to be coming to, to Richmond. And while that might seem insignificant, I mean, there's dollar ramps everywhere. Um, for many, many years, you have not been able to buy uh, socks or underwear in the village of Richmond. What? Really? There's nowhere to buy them. Huh. And, and there hasn't been for like ages. And it's just such a, it's such a small thing. But the fact that you'll now be able to go buy a pair of socks, if you need a pair of socks uh, in Richmond at a dollar is something, and it's 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 that you want to make sure your communities have all the things that you need. You know, we have that in Manitoba because Giant Tiger's there. I think people kind of scoffed at Giant Tiger when it came to Manitoba years and years ago, but it's you know it, it took a place of a former grocery store, and it then expanded, it doubled its size, and it's quite popular because it offers things within a village setting that that you need. You shouldn't have to, you know, always have to leave your community to get the things that you need, your essentials. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons people live in rural areas because they don't like city life. They, you know, so it's nice to have kind of one-stop shopping. My dad lived in Richmond from 1970 to 2020 and uh anytime we talked about uh, you know, leaving Richmond, suddenly his interest in the plan went way way down. So I'm sure there's lots of people in rural areas who feel that way. Well, exactly, and I think it's you know, I think we know that not all rural communities can have all amenities. But at least be in close proximity. So, you know, community like like Cars, uh, community like Munster, they're smaller communities. They're they're beautiful communities and they're great places to live. But they also, you know, you, when you live there, there's there's a bit of a knowledge that you you have to leave to get certain things. Um, and that's where having a neighboring community like Richmond or or Manitick, uh, can help that. You can stay within your your community, stay within the rural area, and be able to get the amenities that you need. Uh, you know, especially in a time of age where we're not always commuting from downtown out here uh, every day where you can just stop by a grocery store on the way home that you need to actually, you know, go out for these things right. uh, on a purposely rather than just picking it up on the way, on the way through. Um, so yeah, so those, those things are all, are all very important. And then we have those policies to make sure that when growth does happen in the rural area that we're considering that and we're encouraging that um, from that growth management perspective earlier, I said, I mentioned that most of the growth is going to occur within the urban area. In fact, it's it's 93%. Uh, only 7% of all growth is expected to occur in the rural area. Uh, 5% is in the villages. So we only actually see uh, when we, when I reference the, you know, 400,000 people coming here in the next 25 years, only 2% of that will actually be uh, in the general rural area outside of villages. Uh, 5% will be within villages. And the official plan sort of says 
refines that more to say exactly where that would be. And because our policies suggest that growth should occur primarily on municipal services, well, there's only four communities that can really offer that. And that's Manitic, Richmond, Carp, and Greeley. Greeley mm-hmm. to a lesser degree than, than the first two, the first three, sorry. So most of your growth, and we've talked about that before, is actually going to happen in Manitic and Richmond. Uh, Carp and Greeley to a lesser degree, but there still will be growth there. And so when you have certain communities, um, and we, I've touched on this in the past where we talk about, you know, there's about f- room for 500 new lots in, in North Gore. Uh, but a lot of that 500 lots is actually sitting on active farmland right now. It's within the old, it's within the village boundary of North Gore. It has a zoning and a designation that would permit residential development to occur on private services. So on well and septic. But the lands are currently owned by people who are actively farming those lands. So these are not 500 units that are going to come tomorrow. In fact, I think there might only be less than 50 units uh, that could be developed anytime in the near future in the village of North Gore. Those other units really may never be developed. I mean, if the, if the landowners continue to farm and want to do that and want to hold that land for generations to come, they're well within their right to do that. Of course, we will dictate to people what they, what they can and cannot do um, with, with farmland. We want it to be preserved uh, regardless of whether it's in a village boundary or not. Uh, but you have those numbers. We, we know that this, there is a capacity within, within the village of North core that it could grow, but it would be on private services. It will not be on, on municipal services like Manitick and Richmond will be. And as such, the potential for growth in Manitick and Richmond is much greater and we also look at intensification within those communities. So where, you know, we our Mantic secondary plan speaks of more three-story uh, apartment-type buildings with commercial in them on the main street of Mantic, uh, rather than, you know, just a single dwelling units. Uh, but we do also expect that a lot of the growth in rural Ottawa will be single dwelling units. We, we know that there will we we're encouraging coach houses too. we have that policy for coach houses that can that's a form of intensification uh, it's it's a it's a lower density form of intensification but it is intensification uh, so that's that piece is there too and then when you get outside the village boundaries that's where you get more growth through your severances um, and we do permit uh, severances in on general rural land so if you own land that's that's designated general rural rural countryside uh, then you'll you'll be permitted to have a severance assuming you haven't already had one we actually permit two severances uh, based on a number of criteria you have to own a certain amount of land you have to have you know minimum two acre has to be two acre lot you can't do severances in the agriculture resource area the only severances we permit in the agriculture resource area are actually severing the house from the farmland but then on the rest of the farmland you have to rezone it to prohibit residential uses and the intent there is is going back to that protecting agricultural land is not losing any agricultural land. You and I are going to have, have to have a discussion on that because, of course, I've got about three acres of land. We've discussed this before that uh, I would I, I'm not using two thirds of it. I'm thinking, OK, I'll sever it and sell that thing. But, yeah, there's there's a bunch of criteria in there as well. I, I guess this would mostly apply to farmers, right, who have massive amounts of land. Yeah. So when you, I mean, the, the, the minimum threshold, and a lot of this comes from, it's not just our policy, it's also provincial policy. So we, our official plan has to be consistent with the provincial policy statement. And there's, um, there are a lot of other provincial policies when it comes to agricultural land and, and rural growth that feed into this. 
And then there's the servicing piece too. So there's minimum lot requirements when it comes to well and septic that we have to consider and we have to embed those into our, into our official plan. Because we know that people have created, you know, half acre lots in the past and it's been no problem, but the current policies say that you can't do that. So we have to, our plans have to be consistent with those policies. You know, for opportunities, there, there's always, you know, some way to, to find an opportunity, uh, but there are going to be situations where it's a no. Um, that you just can't do these things. Um, the no often occurs in the agriculture resource area. There can be there can be ways to to achieve severances, but those minimum lot requirements are pretty significant when it comes to uh, considering those and, and gaining the support the supportive policy to to allow you to do that. Um, but that's really it for 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 the growth management piece. You know the the official plan does talk about respecting village character and design. Uh, we know it's it's all going to be relatively low density. I think, you know, when I when I talk about three story units in in Mantic, that seems like high density for for rural area, but in the grand scheme of things, um, it's a it's a low density development, and that's what we anticipate in the rural area uh, in order to get to that that seven percent of growth that we that we expect to see. It's not a lot, but it's it's still enough to. Uh, for those villages to, to take on that and to remain uh, viable too, because you want these villages to remain viable, but on, touch on a bit about the agricultural stuff too. Like, you know, one would suggest that just one lot and you know, what's one lot off of, uh, off of a farm, you know, what does that really matter? And it's almost that it's that incremental destruction of farmland. Obviously I've been quite outspoken about protected farmland in Ottawa. You know, we had this official plan, uh, does permit a hundred hectares of prime agricultural land to be turned into housing. And I know the arguments are always, well, it's only a bit, but then we hear stories out of Toronto and municipalities in, in the GTA that are allowing, you know, encroachment into the green belt or a loss of farmland here, or you go into Southern Ontario and there's a loss of farmland there. And that incremental encroachment into farmland becomes quite substantial uh, when you consider more than just your own decisions Mm-hmm. And as local councils continue to do that, you're only going to erode farmland more and more. So yeah, we might have a lot here in Ottawa and, you know, hundred hectares here and maybe 50 hectares there isn't a lot to lose, but over how many years do you keep making those same decisions to lose that land? And coupled with other municipalities making those same decisions, there is quite a loss of farmland in Ontario every single day. And it's something that I think you need to consider. We say we take it seriously, but quite often um, political decisions uh, do suggest otherwise. So it's important that we have these policies here, uh, but you also need to make sure the political leadership is there uh, to stand by these policies uh, in perpetuity to make sure that they, they actually mean something. So when you look at the the impact on rural residents overall with the official plan, would you generally say that the new official plan is it has made life better. Is, is, is it a positive situation? The changes that have occurred from the last one, how would you describe it? Yeah, I think, well, I think, you know, at the start of this, I sort of suggested that it's not, it's not a huge shift from what it was before. I mean, the, the right. policies that we have about agricultural land, about rural severances, about rural growth is, is fairly consistent. Uh, there's a lot of consistencies with, with the old plan to the new plan about how we grow in rural Ottawa. Um, a lot of those big pe- those big policy pieces are really more about the urban growth. Um, but this plan doesn't make it worse. You know, I tell you that much. It, it does, it, it, it does strengthen 
the agricultural stuff. It does strengthen some of our policies around uh, economic development, um, providing more opportunities for farmers to, you know, diversify on their farm with other business opportunities that are, you know, consistent with what, what they're already doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there, there are things like that that do open up the door for, for greater potential in, in rural Ottawa uh, for, from business perspective and from, from farming perspective. And I think that's, that's important. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, different, you know, one of the, one of the zoning policies we have recently was the on-farm diversified uses. And there's been so many changes in recent years with the, the influx of, of wineries and, and, and breweries that we need to consider that, you know, there was a time where if you had a wine operation that you actually couldn't sell by the glass on your property, it's not allowed um, unless a hundred percent of what you were growing or what you were selling was being grown. Well, that's impossible that you, you, you're not seeing any local winery not use a blended wine with something else. It's very difficult for them to grow something that's a hundred percent from their land. You always need some additive, same with, same with brewing beer. So there had to be some, some leniency with those policies and and some realization that in order for for agritourism to grow, we need to be a bit more, you know, mindful of of the policies that we create to make sure that they're that they're consistent with allowing for this growth to happen and, and, and being open to it. Now, when when this whole policy, when the official plan came to to committee and council uh, in October, there were some some minor changes here and there that that refined it a bit more and. I'm just going to go over a few of those things because there's only we had about 80 motions, 80 plus motions that came through, but there were a few of them that were were specific to the rural area. And I know my my colleague, Councillor El Shantiri, had one. One was based on it's it's really focused on the Carp Road corridor. Uh, the Carp Road corridor is uh, is a local BIA, a business improvement area, and it's an area where it has a ton of potential for industrial development in rural Ottawa. But one of their key hindrances is, is this whole is the water availability. So we have some policies there that, that would permit them to connect because a lot of the policies around servicing are that it has to be within the village boundary or the urban boundary. There's a servicing boundary that we create and we don't permit servicing outside of that. So we're trying to be flexible on that and provide opportunities for the Carp Road Corridor to connect and to be better developed and provide more opportunities for jobs in that area. So Councillor Shatiri had a motion around that. Um, also had uh, a motion talking about um, food security and finding a way to permit smaller farm operations through that severance policy that we talked about earlier. So when when you have, let's say you buy uh, 200 acres of farmland and there's one farmhouse on it, you have no intention to keep the farmhouse, but you want the land. So our policy says you have to sever the farmhouse, you can sell it, but then you prohibit uses, residential use on the rest of the land, but which I mentioned. But when you sever that farmhouse, it has to be the least amount of land possible um, with a minimum of two acres. So if you wanted to sever 10 acres because there were some outbuildings because there was a natural feature, the policy says no. And that comes from the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs, again, in order to protect farmland. But the tough thing there is that if you want to come in and you want to have, uh, let's say uh, – a 10 acre hobby farm where you want to do some sort of organic farm that's maybe 20 acres, but you don't need the full 200. You may still wish to actually have the, the 20 acres of agricultural land that you won't build houses on that won't pull out from agriculture 
and will allow the hundred and heat the hundred hundred and eighty hectares remaining to still be farmed as well. But the policy doesn't permit that. So um, we want to look at that in, in collaboration with a group in Ottawa called Just Food, which promotes that sort of smaller agricultural operation concept. Uh, to work with the ministry to see if there's an opportunity to address that and see if there are chances to get that done. Like, I know one on Fourth Line Road, they severed uh, 10 acres and there was a natural severance because of just the geography of their property and how it fit. But they were renting out a part of their farm to a local grower, uh, but the rest of their farm was being farmed more commercially. Uh, so they had this natural balance going on, but they wanted to sever it to achieve that. And they met roadblocks along the way. Ultimately, I think they had to appeal it to get it done because staff couldn't support it through the Committee of Adjustment. And that's where we're just sort of looking for flexibility so that our own staff can be in a position to support that type of thing. But we need the changes to come from the province. And then um, two motions that I had that I brought forward uh, pertaining to one was about a state lot subdivision. So back in 2009, the city of Ottawa stopped allowing a state lot subdivisions. If you don't know what a state lot subdivision is, apparently, or essentially Greeley, it's just one big mass of a state lot subdivision around it. Um, It's just all, it's all piecemeal estate lot subdivisions that were built side by side. But in reality, it's a clustering of estate lot subdivisions. Whereas if you go in former Goulburn Township, former Rio Township, these were permitted sort of, you know, dotting the landscape all over the place. You know, we have one on, off of uh, Payton Road called Settler's Way. It's a beautiful state subdivision in there, uh, but it was all gravel roads around it. So in the, in the meantime, we've paved the roads to get to it, but it's not an ideal location for an estate law subdivision. And the costs of servicing that state law subdivision in terms of roads and maintenance and garbage collection and snow plowing and all those things, they add up. And even though it seems that we get a lot of money from tax revenue from a state law subdivision like that, there are studies that show that the cost of service in that community long-term never actually um, never actually um, comes in under the amount of taxes that we, that we generate from that property. So in reality, other landowners are subsidizing that type of development. So we, we for, forbid those developments from happening, but we do still have a number of them that are out there that haven't been built and we would still permit those to be built. So, I brought forward a motion that asked staff to develop a policy that would consider allowing these to be moved around. And the official plan were, was considering that already and adding them to village boundaries, so looking at the, adding them to village boundaries. But what I'm suggesting is that we have spots in the rural area where these would fit. And it's because, you know, you have – in our ward, we have one spot up of, off of Flewellen Road where you have a riding view – way and then you have ironstone court and in between is what should fit another state lot subdivision in fact the road network of the two is is built to consider something in between it but we no longer permit it so we have this one piece of land in between two state lot subdivisions which could permit something but doesn't so my suggestion would be if if a if a developer out there goes and buys a uh, in a state of subdivision that's been applied for in the middle of nowhere that likely will never get built, you know, buy the rights to it and move it to a place that makes more sense so that we can actually create that clustering that does make sense uh, financially and just from a community perspective, as opposed to building something out on a dirt road somewhere uh, that only creates 
you have more challenges. The second you put a paved road off of a, off of a gravel road, everyone who lives on that paved road is now asking, well, when's this gravel road getting up, upgraded? But the taxes generated by the, by the new community never really pay for the cost of upgrading that gravel road. So your, your better bet is just to not allow it to be built in the first place, but let them get built in places where it does make sense. And that's what this motion will look at to having a policy created to do just that, to create that clustering that we always said should be created and not allowing estate and subdivisions in places where they just don't belong. Finally, one last motion. And we talked a lot about, about uh, wind in recent weeks and the official plan uh, does speak to renewable energies and where they can be located and so one one thing that we did change was the official plan was permitting a large-scale provincially regulated wind turbines uh, in the agricultural resource area. And the idea is, well, it doesn't take up that much land. Well, I've already been pretty, pretty clear on if you take even one acre, uh, that's something. And then you add to it more and more, and it adds up. And once mm-hmm. the land's gone, it's gone. So when you put in large-scale uh, wind turbines in a rural area, there's a road network that gets created to get to them. And there's a pad that they have to sit on and there's usually a building next to it and they do take up space and this is prime land. So what we, what I put forward was not an outright ban on, because you know, you really can't, um, if the province comes in with a policy that allows for these things to be applied for again in the future, we, you know, municipalities still don't have, an outright ban, an outright veto uh, to be able to say no, but we do have a say on where they can be located. We have a say. I don't know exactly that we can sit there and say, you can't locate any in this in this municipality. Otherwise, every municipality would do that. And where would, you, where would they go? I mean, so just being realistic, uh, looking at what we have and based on some of the concerns we have about agricultural lands, we altered the policy to say large-scale provincial Regular wind turbines are not permitted on lands designated agriculture resource area. So I felt that was important. Now you can still do small scale wind generation on a farm if you wish, because those are, you know, relatively non-invasive, but um, invasive, sorry. But this, this one here makes, uh, to me, it makes sense. It ensures that the lands that we have that are primary agricultural land remain that way uh, and that nothing encroaches on them. All right. Very good. Anything else we need to know on this topic today before we wrap things up? I'm sure there's always something more. I mean, if anyone anyone listening uh, has questions about what we've talked about here today, from you know a rural perspective, what the rural OP means, what the sorry, what the official plan means for rural Ottawa, you know, by all means, you know, reach out with any questions that you might have about it. I'm happy to, to dive into it. It's a big, big document, and rural is mentioned in it. You know, like over 400 times, the word rural is mentioned in the official plan. Uh, so it's not a forgotten part of Ottawa. Uh, but there's there's a lot of pieces, uh, little nuances here and there. And, and there'll be more to come to as we look at a fish, uh, secondary plans. We have a number of secondary plans in in the rural area. You know, in this ward alone, we've got Manitick, North Corps, and Richmond. And they set out how communities grow and what to expect when they do grow. Uh, so we will still have conversations about those in the, in the years ahead. Yep. So if you want to contact Scott on this, all our contact info, uh, information, there's uh, news about our ward as well, past episodes. And it can all be found at team21.ca. And by the way, we frequently, on Wednesdays, host online drop-into chat sessions so you can talk about the official plan with Scott in one of those. 
And you can see the dates, the Wednesdays that uh, we do host these chats by going to the website as well, team21.ca. So that will do it for today. I want to thank you for being with us, and we'll talk to you in our next episode.